Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVitis podcast. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kaplin. We are today we are very excited to be joined by Drs. Jennifer Thorne and Prisamami. Dr. Thorne is the chief in the Division of Ocular Immunology and a professor of ophthalmology and epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. And Dr. Ami is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of the Uvada Service at UC Davis. Risa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be addressing a topic that can sometimes be a bit of a challenge clinically, that of uveitic choroidal neovascularization. So with that, why don't we just kick off the show with telling us, well, what types of uveitis will give you this complication? Yeah, so Prisa, typically, which forms of uveitis do you tend to monitor more closely for CNV or can maybe perhaps present with the CNV? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, normally, because of the mechanism of this CNVM, we think about some type of disruption in the RP and in the Brooks membrane so that the vessels can grow underneath the retina. So we are mostly thinking about the pathologies and inflammatory um, etiologies that can affect choroid and retina, any type of chorioretinitis, infectious or non-infectious etiologies. In infectious chorioretinitis, we mostly think about toxo less commonly in TB. I've seen cases of endogenous endophthalmitis presenting with later on, a few months later after everything is resolved, presenting with a choroidal neovascular membrane. And in non-infectious etiologies of uveitis, we think about PIC, punctate intercoridopathy, and also um, MCP, multifocal choroiditis panuveitis, or postocular histo. And also cases of serpiginous and VKH could be associated with um, choroidal neovascularization. So basically, we are mostly looking at posterior and panuveitis and cases of chorioretinitis that can present with a net underneath the retina. Perfect. And, and Jen, you know, I think kind of understanding the etiology of CNV and uveitis, and maybe, you know, perhaps the etiology is different than in other causes of CNV, but I guess it also kind of directs how we end up treating it. So what is there a common thread in terms of etiology of CNV and uveitis that may be perhaps a little different from some of the other causes like AMD or, or such? I think that's pretty hard to say, actually. My clinical experience suggests that maybe one of the differences is, is that the, there is more of a pinpoint insult to Brooks rather than a broader insult that you might see in AMD where more of the RPE and Brooks membrane is affected throughout. So that patients with uveitis often have a net that kind of go, comes from a single source. And obviously, I think you're you know, the, the goal with treatment of these patients is to sort of control the inflammation to lower the likelihood of having that damage in another spot or worsening of the damage that's already been done in that area so that you're not getting recurrence um, in the CNV and so that you're not getting perhaps a net in, in the fellow eye or, uh, you know, another area involved. It's, it's interesting. Uh, once upon a time, they used to talk about subretinal surgery for these um, subfovial nets, and uh, they did them both in uveitis and in AMD. And the visual acuity response and the successful surgery was much better in uveitis. And I think that was something that pointed to pathologically how these nets are formed in uveitis versus AMD. That's a great point that Jen brought up. It's the more focal nature of 
CMV that we see in UVA is compared to what we see in macular degeneration or myopic CMVM or other types of CMVM that we commonly see in the clinic. That was very interesting. So a topic we love to turn to on an audio-only format podcast is always our imaging studies. How do you two like to assess to see if there is a neovascular membrane in a uveitis patient? What are some of your favorite imaging modalities? And I'm going to just throw this out there as, as a topic while we're looking at this, is then how do you distinguish this from other things like uveitic macular edema? Yeah, that's a good question. So right now we have a lot of imaging modalities that we can choose from. We have OCT, we have OCT angiography, we have swept source OCT now. Fluorescein angiography, ICG, they're like more like older imaging modalities. So we can choose from all of these imaging modalities in a patient that we see in the clinic. So normally in an assessment of a uveitis patient who comes into my clinic, like a new patient with macular edema or without even macular edema, I normally do OCT and uh, fluorescein angiography plus minus ICG depending on the patient, depending on whether I'm looking at choroid for, for example, sarcoid or tuberculosis or pathologies like that. So I normally go with these imaging modalities. But specifically, if I'm thinking about um, choroidal neovascularization in a patient, I normally look at OCT first. And if I'm worried about like a PED, pigment epithelial detachment that looks a little suspicious, a um, pocket of fluid, pocket of macular edema right next to it, I normally go to a fluorescein angiography in this patient to see if there is any progressive leakage in that area. And sometimes it is hard. Sometimes if you have like a lot of pooling of fluorescein because of fluid, it is tough to see a net. So I, in these patients, I usually get OCT angiography. And it has been shown that OCT angiography is sometimes even better than fluorescein in identifying these lesions. And ICG obviously shows the choroidal lesions a lot better. Jen, I'm, I'm curious for you because I, I think, just like Chris said, I, I struggle certainly sometimes with distinguishing, especially if there's no fluid, whether something is just an area, just an, a new acute area of choroidinitis versus actually an inflammatory CNV. What's kind of your imaging approach to these patients? Mine is quite similar. I probably use OCT. I'm kind of looking at the integrity of the RPE as well as where fluid is on that. And then I move to FA because I think it can sometimes be very illuminating to distinguish it between, say, something that might be more like a macular edema type of case. Or the other thing that I think that probably bears mentioning is just when you're doing a fundoscopy and if you see something that looks perhaps suspicious around the disc, uveitics will also get peripapillary neovascularization, which is more common than perhaps uh, what you see in idiopathic or myopic or AMD again. And you're not necessarily going to pick those areas up on your OCT of your macula. So uh, I think those I probably pick up on exam and then go to the fluorescein to sort of confirm my suspicion. Laura, I'm curious. I've long felt that, you know, OCT is great, you know, when we see beautiful images and papers published. And I don't really use it a ton, but I do feel like in cases like this, like Brissa mentioned, if you happen to see a CNV in one of these kind of inflammatory looking little subretinal hyperreflective areas. It can be very helpful, but I don't know that I uniformly see it. Do you tend to use OCTA in these cases? So it is one of the situations where I, I probably underutilize OCTA a little bit in my practice just because of how it came into being right around the time when I was transitioning into attendinghood. Um, but this is one of the times where I will send back and ask for OCTA. I think that is the challenge sometimes though, is when there's these other 
findings, right? Vitritis or lots of intraretinal fluid where it makes it a little more challenging to interpret the OCTA. But I do like it when there's just new, new outer retinal elevations or, or new PED and I'm trying to distinguish what might be going on there. That's, that's where I tend to use it a fair amount. And Prisa, one one thing I've struggled with, and, and this is, again, there's probably some bias in the nature of the patients that we all see, which is there might be a patient that comes to you that's been treated for a long time with just kind of chronic, we'll say macular edema, and you look at them and you're like, I have no idea if this is this uveitic macular edema, is this fluid related to a CNV, is this a combination? And sometimes, you know, the imaging can be, I'd say, still challenging to kind of distinguish this and you end up kind of treating it, treating it for everything and seeing what kind of sticks, right? But in situations like that, do you find that that perhaps fluorescein is the most useful to kind of distinguish some of these things or, or what? I, mean, I sometimes use all of these imaging modalities, <laughs> just use every single one of them side by side, cross-sectional OCTA, unfast OCTA, everything side by side trying to figure out. And sometimes, as you mentioned, it is just, it is tough. And you just have to treat the patient based on your best judgment at the moment and follow them very, very closely to see what's, what's going to happen. If you start staring in this patient, it doesn't get better. You can throw anti-VEGF at this point and see if it makes it any better. But I agree, it's sometimes really, really tough. Well, you transition nicely into the next topic that I think we want to discuss, which is when should we be treating an inflammatory neovascular membrane? And I think sometimes that seems like an easy question, but I've had a couple of situations where it's not as easy as you think to, uh, to know where to go. So, I mean, John, what are some of the obvious times when we're going to want to treat an inflammatory CNV? Well, I think inflammatory CMV, particularly when it's um, in in the macula, is vision threatening, and so I would lean toward treating treating all of those. Um, I I tend to be uh, probably a little bit more aggressive in my treatment when I see uh, posterior pole complications, so things like macular edema, things like CMV. I think just kind of circling back to um, what you guys were discussing about. Can it be difficult to tell really what's going on? If there's a lot of fluid there, and if that is sort of part of the, the clinical exam that is sort of confounding what it is that you're looking at, a lot of these, these chorioretinitis patients, I'm going to treat with systemic uh, medication, including a corticosteroid as well as immunosuppression, because they tend to have better clinical outcomes if that's, in fact, what I do. And sometimes having a week's worth of 60 of prednisone and then bringing them back and, and re-looking at the eye may actually be able to help you better discern what it is you're dealing with, because some of that fluid has hopefully died down. So I'm looking to try to I'm using the steroid to try to shut off the spigot, so to speak, the inflammatory spigot as, as quickly as I can. But I'm also then using immunosuppression because my plan is, is to get them completely off of the steroid. And my goal is, is to use that therapy, not to only treat the CNV, but to prevent that CNV once it's treated from coming back, recurring, or developing in the contralateral eye. So that's sort of a universal plan if I, if I see CNV in a non-infectious posterior uveitis. Obviously, if it's an infectious disease, we're aiming to treat the infection first and calm the inflammation with steroid and going from there. 
I think one of the situations I've struggled with sometimes is with the peripapillary membranes, particularly if it's on the side of this that's not near the macula and where there isn't any obvious bleeding or fluid in that area. And then occasionally I've had one or two patients later, like Doc, she said, you've gotten them after they've had treatments with other folks that have had PEDs that very clearly when you do an OCTA have large neovascularizations within them. But in the moment, you know, you're not really sure if it's visually significant to that patient. And those have been some scenarios that I've struggled with. Harissa, how how would you approach maybe some of those situations? That's a great question. So as Jen mentioned, these patients have two different aspects that we need to tackle. They might have some underlying inflammation, chorioretinitis, non-infectious chorioretinitis going on that needs to be addressed for that eye and the uh, contralateral eye. And there is this CMVM that is there that might or might not respond to whatever treatment that we do. So I would address that with like systemic or local immunosuppressive treatment. But then back to your question about the peripapillary um, corridor neovascularization. To answer this question, I also need to look at whether the patient has macular edema in that area or not. Because if there is only corridor neovascularization, non-leaking, there's no fluid around it, I normally don't treat. I would just observe and see treating, meaning with anti-VEGF. I'm treating the underlying um, inflammation regardless. But I won't treat that specific lesion because there is no fluid, there is no leakage. But if there is leakage associated with that, I would have this conversation with patient that this might not be visually significant, but if we treat it, we might have a better visual outcome in the long run. So I would have this conversation. Granted that we know that a lot of these patients don't need a ton of injections. They would do just fine with one or two anti-VEGF injections. So I would have this conversation, but I agree with you. Sometimes I would have a hard time figuring out whether I need to treat this lesion or not. So moving on to how we treat it, and of course, you guys have laid the foundation very nicely in that with the eye with uveitis, it's not, we're not treating the CNV in a vacuum. Um, <laughs> we're treating as part of a larger, unfortunately, unfortunately, as a, a larger picture of inflammation. So let's just say we have the eye otherwise controlled inflammation visor, perhaps as a patient with PIC that comes in with really the CNV, which is kind of the all that we're really focusing on. Jen, what's your kind of first approach for treating maybe a person with the PIC-related CNV that actually has um, subretinal fluid um, in the eye? So I tend to first, you know, if this is a patient that's first presenting to me, brand new patient, first I kind of step back and I make sure that there is a workup, that we've ruled out um, bad things because I am anticipating that I'm going to put them on steroid and immunosuppression for their uveitis. And I'm going to explain to that patient that while this isn't the, the, the main treatment for what's causing their vision loss right now, it will help with the fluid and it will prevent um, further problems with CNV and um, macular edema going forward. Then, because I tend to co-manage with um, somebody that is in retina for CNV in general, I have them seen and often will have them give if, you know, if it's kind of a clear-cut case, have them give anti-VEGF intravitreal therapy at that time. I agree with some of the other comments that these patients often don't need a ton of intravitreal injections. One or two sometimes is enough to calm things down, particularly if you're treating their uveitis. I think that that kind of helps settle things. And then, then it's just a, a matter of, you know, monitoring. And uh, depending on what imaging was helpful, 
to diagnosing the CNV in the first place is often the imaging that I'll continue with because I figure it's going to look similar on imaging uh, if it comes back or if the other eye gets involved. And then I and then I just treat the chorioretinitis like like we all do, kind of like we all we proceed with trying to get rid of the steroid and we. Uh, try to treat them for at least two to three years on the immunosuppression. And then you have a thoughtful conversation with the patient about whether or not you think taking them off medicine is going to be appropriate. I do want to highlight that as something we're talking about here, that need for underlying inflammatory control. I do feel like this is a philosophical difference that I've encountered sometimes from retina colleagues who very much have been somewhat questioning, why am I offering this patient that has a CNVM? Systemic immunosuppressive therapies be it with prednisone and then subsequent immunosuppression. And I, I agree with, with what others have been sharing here that I do think that really does reduce your risk for further sequelae, additional CMM, CMMs. And it helps with that control because I also have found that people don't always need to keep getting an injection every six weeks once we've got this inflammation under control. And so I think that is a bit of a take-home message that I'm hoping this episode can spread a little bit more widely. Actually, I don't know what's been your experience with that point. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the that that point is really important. And the other thing I'd say is that inflammatory CNVMs for our retina colleagues, they tend to be on average more commonly type two CNVMs, so subretinal. So there's a, a much greater propensity for causing subretinal fibrosis if they get you know these massive recurrences. So really having that inflammatory control to prevent recurrent or new areas of CNV, like Jennifer has said in the contralateral eye, is really really important. It's amazing how quickly these patients can get subretinal fibrosis, even if they're they're not having active active exudation, if the inflammation is not kept under proper control. So yes, I think the anti-VEGF treatment is important, but it, it's something that we're using alongside our systemic inflammatory control. Very 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 critical. Yeah, so, I totally agree with you. In fact, I wonder. If some of the patients that, you know, we called sort of the subretinal fibrosis patients of old prior to our ability to really do a lot of the imaging that we do, I wonder if those people were people that had CNV nets that were, that, that basically had a very striking subretinal uh, fibrosis type of response. So it's, in, it's, in, it's an interesting um, to see how we differ from some of our retina colleagues in our approach to these patients. just want to add one more challenge to management of these patients. As we all know, a lot of our uveitis patients are younger patients, and like more than half of our patients are women of childbearing age. Some of them could be pregnant or breastfeeding women coming in with this cordial neovascular membrane. So there's always challenge of treating these patients with anti-VEGF during pregnancy or during breastfeeding. As we all know, like retina, as retina specialists and uveitis specialists, we all avoid using anti-VEGF during pregnancy. There's more controversy about using um, anti-VEGF injections, intravitreal anti-VEGF injections during nursing and breastfeeding. And I would be curious to know how you all manage these patients. Laura, I'll let you take first stab at that. <laughs> well, I think that we do have other options, right? I mean, the one good thing is I think a lot of inflammatory neovascular membranes, local corticosteroids can also provide benefit there. I mean, the management of the pregnant patient, that's actually probably a whole episode we should have some time about all of our treatments, right? I mean, because I think there's some preferences towards certain TNF 
Yeah, right. Because because there's certain TNFs that are probably a little more favorable. Obviously, some of the antimetabolites are just off the table. But you know, I do tend to go sometimes more towards local corticosteroids in the setting of pregnancies. And that a lot of my patients, that's their personal preference as well, because they're just so concerned about systemic side effects. And and I think a lot of times CNVMs at least will respond well enough with that. Another topic for this future episode is, you know, what does the uveitis look like during pregnancy? And oftentimes, you know, you'll sometimes thankfully get a little bit of a wiggle room as things kind of go into a less active phase for parts of the pregnancy, at least. That's actually true. I've had, you know, just anecdotal experience that treatment with dexamethasone palate, where you kind of expect maybe eight to 12 weeks of an effect, but in someone who is pregnant, suddenly you're getting six months or seven months. And I, I tend to, with pregnant women and when, you know, I tend to let them know that, that the immune system is a little calmer during the pregnancy and during nursing that, that by design to try to not, uh, to not make your, your pregnancy or your unborn child uh, sick, basically, from your own immune system. So things settle down. But I also warn my patients that once they stop nursing, that the party, the party is probably over. And so I ask them, you know, if they know about when they think they're going to stop nursing, that to get in and be evaluated, you know, within the month after they've stopped, because occasionally you can catch a flare-up of disease when it's sort of smoldering and it hasn't caused a lot of mischief yet. Jen, I think this is like a really nice segue because, you know, just like Laura said, there are times where an intravitreal corticosteroid can be very effective at treating inflammatory CNV. And like you said, you know, in a pregnant patient, that would probably be, you know, like our probably first-line option before we would consider having this discussion about anti-VEGF. Are there other situations in which you feel like injecting a, a local corticosteroid is where you would lean towards over uh, an intravitreal anti-VEGF agent? I think in some ways it depends. If you've got someone, for instance, that has reasons, um, other reasons where you wouldn't feel comfortable putting them on high doses of oral corticosteroid, you may need to use that almost as a bridge to buy some time for immunosuppressive therapy to kind of kick in. So I think that would be you know, one uh, potential consideration. I think uh, occasionally, depending on, you know, the retina person that I use, we may have a conversation about, well, there's an awful lot of fluid here. Maybe we want to start with an intravitreal corticosteroid and then shift to intravitreal anti-VEGF a little later to try to clear some of the fluid first. So I think it's, I think in some ways, I think it's important to be kind of open-minded and flexible about um, these sorts of patients and kind of use all your tools in your toolkit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Prisa, this is kind of probably more of a logistics question, which is like you, like you all have said, on average, if especially if you catch someone with, a, with an acute inflammatory CNV, they might just need a few treatments, assuming you have their inflammation otherwise under control. But we certainly all have patients that probably come with a more chronic picture and with chronic fluid requiring chronic treatment not dissimilar to perhaps some of our AMD patients. And we are limited perhaps in our treatment options just based on their diagnosis, right? Because a lot of our anti-VEGF agents are not really approved for treatment of an inflammatory CMV or an idiopathic CMV, what have you. So just logistically, if you have a patient that you start on, let's say, bevacizumab, and perhaps it is not drying up their retina, 
and you've tried a local corticosteroid, doesn't seem to be doing doing anything additional. So you think this is really a VEGF mediated process. How are you getting them onto perhaps something that might be more more effective or more durable? Are you using samples or, or how do you what do you kind of do in a situation? And I'm happy to share what I do, but I'm just curious what everyone else. Well, we are not, in an, in the academic center that I work at. We are not allowed to use samples, so sample is out of question. I haven't had a very hard time getting patients approved for a, a bevacizumab. We usually code them as choroidal neovascular membrane. A lot of these patients are very high myopic patients. So even for me as a clinician, it is sometimes difficult to differentiate between a PIC-related choroidal neovascularization and a myopic CMVM in the same patient. So in these patients, it is not too difficult to get them approved for um, the medication. And for intraocular or periocular steroids, there's not a problem because these patients usually have like inflammatory process going on as well. But I'd be curious to know what everybody else does. I think it's more of a challenge. Laura, it's, it's more of a challenge, right? You're referencing if you want to use like a flibersap or um, Versamab or one of those, right? It's a challenge. <laughs> I've had some patients who happen to also be diabetic and maybe were, I mean, I, we don't know, right? I mean, if they're having a macular edema that's not responding to immunosuppressive therapy, maybe it is another mechanism, right? So sometimes we'll use those codings if, if, that happens to be the correct clinical scenario. You know, I have a couple of patients that are a little bit older where for a while actually maybe we're very well controlled and now have this neovascularization. It's like, well, I don't know, could I tell if they have AMD or not when their core, you know, their back is already all scarred. So sometimes we'll code for that. But it is sometimes an issue with someone that's, you know, 35 and otherwise doesn't have much else going on systemically or in their eyes. So I, I know what you're saying, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going around because I'm curious. I know everyone does things a little different. Jen, what do you do in patients like that? Or what's discussion are you having with your retina colleagues? Well, I think, I think it is kind of important what code you use. And I think that kind of not using a code that says coronal neovascularization that isn't, doesn't list an association may be logistically the safest way to go about this. It's, it's truthful, but it also gives, doesn't give insurance companies the excuse to deny it if you say inflammatory CMV it might be a problem. So I think if you keep it more general, I think that's a good idea. I think, of course, if there are other potential diseases that could be causing abnormal blood vessels for whatever reason, I think those need to kind of go into the problem list. Just to be on the safe side, I think if you had a peer-to-peer, you could make the argument that you're not necessarily, you know, 100% sure that you are treating the uveitis, but there are these other factors involved that could be contributory to the CNV. And particularly if you have tried some of the other players and they've not been useful, then I think also that is an important concept to kind of convey to insurance providers that, yes, we've already done a little bit of this step therapy. And then lastly, you know, it's, I think it's helpful to kind of give the idea of what the, the consequence or the risk is to the vision um, to kind of create the sense of urgency and the real need for, for these sorts of tra- treatments, even if we don't typically use things other than be- bevacizumab or um, for our anti-VEGF therapy for inflammatory CMV. I think that, um, 
sometimes with a peer to peer, you can kind of work through that and explain why, you know, what your thinking is and hopefully you get somebody that's sympathetic. I, I do think in general, the Bevacism app for me is most of the time been, you know, it's gotten what I've needed out of it. You know, those couple of injections, we got the inflammation under better control mm-hmm. and a lot of times we're happy. The one thing I'd add is that, so the patients that I've been a little bit more cautious about are the ones that seemingly don't have a ton of residual subretinal fluid. Maybe they have just a little less chronic intraretinal fluid, which seems to be about the same. And you're kind of treating them, treating them, treating them. And I've had a couple patients that I just feel like they just turn around like, wait a second, your subretinal fibrosis looks so much worse now. And again, like Jen was mentioning, we, wa- we wonder if this is what we call progressive subretinal fibrosis and resist this out of control CNB. And so I, I feel like I've been in general, just very aggressive about getting rid of all fluid. And it, I, I completely agree. You use every tool in your toolbox to do that which is sometimes if there is a possibility that they could be, could be dealing with something else. And like I said, the picture is not always clear. They may have a little bit of DME. They could have a, a, a component of myopic CNV. Or like you, like, just like Jen said, I've, I've had decent success just talking. If there's insured that, that will allow a peer-to-peer, explaining this and kind of explaining the visual morbidity with this undertreated disease um, has some success. And when that all fails, I've had patients I've used samples that have actually done remarkably well. I mean, again, it's a little bit tricky because a lot of these other medications have certain warnings associated with treatment and eyes with inflammation and so on and so forth. And there's just things you have to think about. But it just goes to show that sometimes we, we, we do sometimes have like one of our arms tied behind our backs when we're trying to treat these very complicated patients. And so just have to use, sometimes have to beg, borrow, and steal to kind of get our patients better. But um, anyway, but I am curious, you know, Jen, you know, you obviously were deeply involved with Merit. And, you know, of course, while Merit was a study for uveic macular edema, it was interesting that patients being treated with anti-VEGF did have a some reduction in their central subfield thickness, even if it wasn't as good as a steroid. Do you feel like these patients that maybe have a mixed picture of some uveic macular edema, some uveic CNV may do well with an anti-VEGF monotherapy? It's hard to say. I mean, I think, first of all, you have to have the inflammation under control because anti-VEGF therapy will do nothing for the active uveitis. So you have to be certain that you have residual fluid in the face of controlled uveitis. And the at least the primary outcome three-month results that have been published in Merit do suggest that the best drug for the job if you have recurrent or persistent macular edema, is in fact steroid. And it wasn't particularly close. Now, does, <laughs> does that mean that there are individuals out there that could benefit from anti-VEGF therapy to reduce fluid? Sure. But I think that having as good of an understanding as we can of the mechanism of why that fluid is there And so if you think the fluid is there because of CNV, even if it's a cult and you're having trouble finding it, then I think those are probably the people that will respond. The tricky part is, is they probably would respond to the steroid as well. So Prisa, if let's just say you have a patient and let's say you've you've diagnosed them with PIC or maybe multifocal choroiditis and their inflammation is now otherwise under control and you're really treating their CNV and with, with, with an anti-VEGF agent. What's kind of your general treatment approach? Are you saying, I'm going to give you X number of treatments these many weeks apart? Or are you doing certain loading doses and then extending them? What's kind of your treatment approach for that? 
So for these specific patients or for uveitic CNBM patients, I usually don't give them a loading dose. I usually give them one dose of anti-VEGF, reevaluate them in a few weeks. And then if they needed more, I'm going to give them more injections at that point. I know that there are like different ways of treating these patients with cordial neovascularization. For macular degeneration patients, a lot of us treat them with a loading dose and then treat an extend dosing. But studies have been shown that in these uveitic uh, macular edema patients secondary to CMVM, loading dose, giving loading dose doesn't necessarily result in better outcomes in the patients or less injections in the long run. So I usually follow the PRN type treatment course in these patients. Jen, do you do something similar? Yes, I think that most of the people that I'm managing these patients with don't do that exactly the same way. And they're a population that we're seeing back. You know, this isn't someone where you're going to bring them back and then maybe choose not to inject it. You're following them because they're you're doing stuff for their inflammation a lot of times or you're monitoring their uveitis. So I think it's a very amenable patient population to more of a PRN approach oftentimes. I think the one that, the one time I've been a little more hesitant is I have one patient that always had pretty significant vision loss in one eye from inflammatory CNVM who did unfortunately get additional inflammatory lesions in their other eye um, because they hadn't been on immunosuppressive therapy before they met me. And for them, we've been doing more of a treat and extend approach because she's got, you know, essentially almost foveal lesion now in her good eye. That, that's been the one time I've been a little more hesitant to be, be quite as, as laissez-faire as a PRN approach. But hopefully now that she's immunosuppressed, we're going to get better outcomes. And I'm also curious, again, I, I feel like some, some of this, unfortunately, a, a, lot of, a lot of our experience with this and the lack of large, not, I don't think we're ever going to have a trial with 1,000 patients with uveitic CNV or 500 patients with uveitic CNV. Unless, unless Jen has it planned, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we could find them. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so in the absence of that, I'm just curious anecdotally. So, we'll, like big asterisk here, anecdotally. Chris, you know, like a lot of these medications, like I, like we were discussing before, have these warnings, right? About not for patients with a prior history of ocular inflammation. There's, a, we'll say, a relative contraindication or use with use with use at your own risk. We'll say. Do you feel like you've seen higher rates of perhaps a sterile inflammation where they're coming in with almost an enophthalmitis-like picture, but not quite enophthalmitis a couple of days after an injection or not really? It's very hard to tell. I haven't seen it personally myself, thankfully. <laughs> but a lot of these trials of anti-vegia for macular degeneration, for diabetic macular edema, excluded the patients with active ocular inflammation. So it's hard to tell, as you said, we don't have any large data in these patients, like large prospective good quality data. And database studies are also limited in our uveitis patient population because we basically don't have any good big database to look at. So it's hard to tell. Thankfully, I haven't seen any. I hope I never see any. <laughs> right. Yeah. Laura, what about you? Honestly, I don't use a ton of non Um and I, but I think it's partly like practice bias, right? Because I don't do anywhere near the retina level of practice that that you guys do. I mean, I I really am trying to think. I think I only have two patients I can think of that are having an anti-vegetative that isn't bevacizumab currently active in my practice. But if you think about numbers, the rate of sterile inflammation in bevacizumab is around one point five two percent, right? I don't think I've injected two hundred patients with uveitic right, macular. Right. Right. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> and numbers are so low. <laughs> Right. And, and, and I'm, just, I'm just going around the table here. Jen, have you seen any episodes of very strange sterile endophthalmitis following anti-vegetative injections in your patients at a rate higher than expected? No, 
And also, I don't think there were any cases in merit of this. That was ranibizumab. And what, that's what, about 200 patients? No, well, 200 patients total. I mean, the indication was different. It was macular edema, but there, I don't think there was any re- reports of the, the close to maybe 80 patients that were treated for a period of um, six months with at least two injections per protocol. So I don't know. I think it, maybe that's just um, to be safe because they don't they don't have a good idea of the of the end uh, of that occurrence. Maybe it only happened one or two times. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I have not, and I I, I don't know. I, can't, I don't know the exact number, but I have a fair number of patients I'm treating with UVXCNV, and I can't think of a single situation where I've felt their inflammation has impacted my decision for what sort of therapeutic. And the reason I ask this is because we have obviously in the retina space, lots of registration trials for various interventional therapeutics. And when we see sometimes in the real world, higher rates of inflammation than perhaps anticipated in a trial, they're sort of sometimes quick to point at, oh, well, you know, there's like this remote history of iritis in this eye. So maybe they're at a higher risk of developing a occlusive retinal vasculitis or some of that. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking like, I've, I don't know, again, as a community, I don't think we've ever felt that that was a risk factor for some terrible response to an antivagal injection. But anyway, I was just curious if, if uh, one of you were going to lead me in a different direction here. But uh, one other question, and this is, again, just a, a maybe it's a fact or fiction question. But Jen, do you, do you think that having a patient on immunosuppression is a risk factor for endophthalmitis? Or are those patients, would, when you're counseling them, are they at a higher risk of endophthalmitis than the average patient? I don't think so. We um, stab a lot of people with uh, in the eye with steroid and knock wood. I haven't seen a case of infectious endophthalmitis from that treatment. I don't recall a case of infectious endophthalmitis in point or in merit. Um, all of those patients received intravitreal um, therapy. So I would think it would be pretty daggone low. Honestly, I, I think immunosuppression in many ways is is very good for the for the uveitis patient, not just for preventing things like choroidal neovascularization or preventing recurrences. But I hear from my glaucoma colleagues that say, you know, your patients with uveitic glaucoma, if they're on immunosuppression, we have no trouble controlling their eye pressure. So it's it's kind of interesting. I, I, I think that there are some perhaps hidden advantages to fully suppressing and controlling the inflammation for for a period of time that makes some of these patients um, do better. So, you know, I hope we never have a case of infectious um, endophthalmitis because I'm sure that that would scare a lot of people if we did. Well, on that happy note, I think a, a great take home for this entire episode, we really had to juice it and come out with one point, is that really, really treating that inflammation is critical to to controlling inflammatory CNV and really preserving vision. So it's really beyond just anti-vegetative injections to my fellow retina colleagues. And and this is something I'm guilty of as well, but really, really control that inflammation. I really want to thank Jen and Presta for being here. Jen, thank you so much for spending time with us on a Saturday afternoon going over all this stuff with us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Presta, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It was great seeing you and talking to you guys. And thank you as well to you, our listeners, for joining us for yet another episode of Headlight in the Fog. Stay well, stay safe, and tune in again soon.